We are going to be continuing our study in the fruit of the Spirit. We've been studying through the letter of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians for here a few months now. And we came upon the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians chapter 5, and I thought that it would be a wise use of our time to spend one week taking one fruit per week and just diving in, trying to figure out what it is that peace and gentleness and joy and love, what do these look like? How do we cultivate them in our lives? What does it teach us about who God is? After all, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Is it even possible when we consider our own sin, when we consider the difficult circumstances in which we live, are these things even things that are possible to cultivate on this side of the resurrection? And so this week we'll be looking at the fruit of the Spirit, that is peace. Isaac Backman some of you may be familiar with his name. He wrote uh, a novel called A Man Named Ove, O-V-E. He also wrote a couple of books that were centered around a town called Beartown. First book, the first novel is called Beartown. Second novel is called Us Against You. And really what the novels are, are they're kind of similar, only I think better if you've ever read Friday Night Lights. Uh, it's a sports novel that's really not about sports. It's really an exploration of the human condition. And Bear Town is a small town in Sweden that centers its joy and its hopes and its unity on a small youth hockey team. And as you go through the novel, what you find is this town is, there's one act of violence that ends up erupting and dividing and creating discord and revealing prejudices in the town. And by the end of the first novel, it's not a happy novel, the whole town unravels. There's no harmony, there's no unity, there's no peace, even though the characters long for it. And the one thing that they hoped would unite their town, this hockey team, as they would all come to the arena and say, everything else disappears, we're all one as we're rooting on this hockey team, even that thing by the second novel has failed them. Many of the players have left, they're now part of a rival team, and now hockey, which was a source of great unity, is a source of great division. And the author makes an interesting point. He makes the point that perhaps all of this started with one act of violence. But then makes the observation that really the violence has always been there. Boiling under the surface. Needing only the temperature to be turned up a couple of degrees to erupt like a volcano. Beartown could be any town in the world. Beartown is our town. For many of us, Beartown is a glimpse into our own families that we grew up in, the towns that we've grown up in, the schools that we were a part of, the relationships that we've known. That those things were not governed ultimately by peace and unity and the well-being. The, the Old Testament term would be the shalom of God, but rather like a fabric fraying and unraveling is always being torn at the seams 
Not merely by a single act of violence, but by a violence that has always been there. And I would suggest, though Backman doesn't acknowledge this, it is a violence that has existed since sin has come into the world. We see it with Cain and Abel, and we see it grow ever since, and it lies at the very heart of our civilization today. And it is to cities like Beartown, or any town, that Christ and his church are preaching the gospel of peace. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit that is peace, what is it that we're talking about? Let me just give you a big idea that we're going to work from this morning. A big idea of the fruit of the Spirit being peace, and it's this, that because God has made peace with us, now we pursue peace with others. Because God has made peace with us in Christ, now we pursue peace with others. Open up, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is an epistle written by Paul. It's to the right of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit Acts, you're still not gone far enough to your right. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. We've gone through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, most of chapter 5, and now we're here at the end of chapter 5. And this is what Paul says. He says a number of times in this passage, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. That the Spirit is, in a sense, our commanding officer, and we are to line up and march according to His orders and His resources. And He says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, which is contrary, verse 19, to the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. We're going to see that, that Paul, in his letters, understands peace in no less than three ways. And we're going to look at three things this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the peace that God made. Secondly, we're going to consider the peace that God gives. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to consider the peace that God commands. The peace that God made, the peace that God commands, and the peace that God gives. In the background of all of this is going to be this Old Testament idea of shalom. This notion of shalom in the Old Testament has the idea, if you think about the image of the fabric that I just shared, of this fabric being knit together in perfect harmony, of being strong and united and every thread fulfilling its ordained purpose in harmony with every other piece. That was the order with which God, who is a God of order and peace, has created the entire universe. It is sin that is fraying and, and splitting that fabric, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will put it all back together again. It is the shalom of creation. It is well-being. It is unity. It is order. That's the idea in the Old Testament. And so you can then understand why such joy was proclaimed at the incarnation of Jesus, that it was peace to men, goodwill, joy to the world, that peace had come. 
And you can also understand then why when, when Christ would miraculously heal others as a demonstration of his power and the validation of the gospel that he came to preach, would often after each healing say, go, peace be with you. That in that fabric, what you see is the shalom of God putting back together this fabric that was been shredded by sin and by the curse, bit by pit, piece by piece, putting it all back together, peace be with you. And so when Christ commissions his disciples in the Gospel of John, he says, my peace I give to you, my shalom. And he commits them to go make disciples. That The peace that he had given to them is a peace that they would proclaim, and it is a peace that they would pursue, and it is a peace that would mark the church. This is the tapestry that marks the background of the way Paul understands peace. Paul doesn't contradict Jesus, and he's not working contrary to the Old Testament. Then when you get to the epistles, all the epistles are doing is explaining what we see in the Gospels, as Christ has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. So if we have his incarnation in the Gospels, in the epistles, we have the explanation of Christ and all that he's come to do and has done. Let's start here with this idea, the peace that God made. Turn to your right to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at a number of texts this morning. But for right now, we're considering the peace that God has made. Ephesians chapter 2. Just a little bit to your right there. Verses 1 all the way through 10, Paul has gone on in the glory of the gospel of grace alone by faith alone. That you were once dead in sin, but now you've been made alive in Christ, and you are seated with him. That's true of Every person who has repented and trusted in Christ. And this gospel, he says in verse 11 and following, is doing something amazing in the church. Just read with me, picking up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is non-Jews, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, second time he's repeated that that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and being without God. We see five things there. Separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. That is a bleak and dark situation. But verse 13, but now, that's who you were, but here's who you are. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And look at this, verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit 
to the Father. Did you notice in that passage that peace is mentioned no less than four times? Verse 14, Christ is our peace. Verse 15, Christ is the one who made peace. And in verse 17, through the apostles preaching, Christ is the one preaching, and he preaches peace. It's the very heart of his message to those who are far off and who have now been brought near. The peace that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 is a once-for-all peace that has been achieved by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not something that God is doing. It is something that God has done. It is finished. It is, for all intents and purposes, the core ingredients of a ceasefire. And so we consider through the history of the geopolitical scene, the idea of a ceasefire of two warring and hostile nations agreeing and coming to terms that they will, insofar as it's possible, according to their own mutual interests, to pursue peace. That is kind of like what Paul's talking about, but not really. In a sense, it is a ceasefire, but it is not a mutual agreement. The peace that Christ has made is not a mutual ceasefire. It is God single-handedly subduing his enemies, converting his enemies into friends, and then making his enemies members of his royal family. It is unilaterally accomplished by God. He doesn't enter into negotiations. He is the one that has done it, and he did it through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a non-Christian, it is vital for you to know that the gospel is not God loves you and you are okay. And it is not that you can somehow make peace with God. That is impossible. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and cannot obey his law. You couldn't obey him if you wanted to. You couldn't make peace if you would, but you won't because you can't. God himself has to unilaterally act and accomplish the very grounds for peace in order for there to be any peace whatsoever. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ, you need to understand that fundamental to the Christian message is the notion that you cannot make yourself right with God. God has to make peace with you and it is all of his work. And it is something that he has done through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. It was the only way. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But if you're a believer here, then we need to be reminded that true peace is not something that we can engineer apart from the preaching of the gospel, apart from true conversion, and apart from spiritual transformation. There are all kinds of Christians that are obsessed with cultural transformation. But listen to me, all true transformation and the peace that comes with it can only come from conversion. Which is why we are first and foremost committed to the preaching of the gospel. 
Any application of God's law to our culture with the hope that our culture will submit to God's law and glorify Him and bring about any peace apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit is a pipe dream. We need to be reminded that the kind of peace that we long for and the kind of peace that we labor for is a peace that only God has made and it is a peace that He has made through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that Christ has been given authority over all things and that God is reconciling everything, not just people to Himself, making peace through the blood of the cross. There will be no peace apart from the cross. So for all of you socially minded brothers and sisters, I love you. I hope that we all have a huge heart for being socially engaged, for living just lives in the world. But living just lives in the world apart from the God who justifies by faith through grace alone and Christ alone, that is an illusory justice. And it will not or transform anything, and it cannot bring peace. We need to be reminded that peace is something that God has made. And he's done that through the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, this peace that God has made is fundamental to the gospel. But the peace that we're talking about here, the peace that God made, that isn't the fruit of the Spirit. It's foundational to the gospel, but that's not what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5. God made peace so that God could give peace to his people. And so we consider our second point. We've looked already at the peace that God made, and now we're considering the peace that God gives. And this peace that God gives, according to the Apostle Paul in his letters, comes in two dimensions. Number one, it is peace with God. And secondly, it is peace from God. It is peace with God, and it is peace from God. When we say that, that we have peace with God, what do we mean? Well, to get an idea, turn to your left to, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'll give you a second to get there. Romans chapter 5. Romans 4, 1 through 3, Paul is establishing that every single person who has ever lived has been condemned by sin in their own unbelief. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then in Romans 4, he establishes the only way that unrighteous sinners can be declared righteous, and that is going the way of Abraham. That you trust in God alone, by faith alone, and the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ alone. You are justified by faith in Christ alone. And here's the result, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's Romans chapter 4, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The entire world can be divided into two groups. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Every single person who is in Adam apart from Christ, that is that they have not repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone to be their Savior. They have not been united to Him and received the Spirit. They are in the flesh. Every single person in Adam is a slave to sin and are at war with God. 
we, every single one of us, were in rebellion against him and were objects of his wrath. Kiddos, if you're in here this morning, listen, I love to see kiddos that are compliant with their, with their, to their mamas and daddies, that want to follow and love and be peaceful in the home. But sometimes we need to recognize, children, that if you have not yet trusted in Jesus alone, by faith alone, then you are at war with God no matter how peaceful or how kind or how submissive you may be to your mom and dad. In fact, your submissiveness to your mom and dad, if you think that's what makes you okay with God, is part of what makes you not okay with God. That you, just like your mom and dad, have to recognize that you need to trust entirely in Jesus and that he is the one who can make you perfectly righteous before God. You need to ask your parents today, at lunch, Mama, Daddy, how can I be made righteous before God? That's a big word. Let me say it again. Righteous, holy, right. You need to ask them at lunch. Mamas and daddies, this is what you can tell them. That there is nothing that you can do, sweetie. Son, there is nothing that you can do. No amount of serving your brothers or sisters, no amount of obeying mom and dad that can make you right before God. The only thing you can do is set aside any attempt whatsoever to prove to God that you're worthy of him loving you and accepting you. You need to trust with all of your heart in Christ Jesus. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is the king. And you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Parents, we cannot tell our children that message enough. That they need peace with God. So every person in Adam is a slave to sin and at war with God. We were in rebellion against him and we were objects of his wrath. But then by God's grace, we were made to repent and believe in the gospel. And when we did, everything changed. We now have peace with God through Christ. We're no longer enemies. We are friends and family. Once God was against us, now God is for us. That is what the gospel does. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you need to be reminded that you may not remain just where you are. And you can't just make yourself a little bit better. The biblical gospel confronts people as sinners facing the wrath of God. And it tells people about God's radical solution to saving sinners from himself. And that is Jesus' sin-bearing death on a cross in place of sinners. That Christ would become like an enemy of God, so the enemies of God would become friends and family of God. And this gospel, this good news, calls people to an equally radical response. This is what it's calling you to. Not merely an intellectual assent, but it is to repent, to stop right where you are, in your tracks, to make an about face 
from whatever it is that you're trusting in and hoping in and put all of your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be saved. For those of us in here that have been walking with God any amount of time, we need to be reminded of this gospel time and time again. So I might ask you, are you bored with God? Are you bored with the gospel? Have you grown kind of meh with gospel grace? Sometimes I think we act like spoiled kids that were born into a wealthy family. As if this wealth is something that we've always had. It is just our birthright. Somehow we deserve it, and along the way we've come to just take it for granted. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that our birthright is death and the wrath of God against us. Every single one of us was born into sin, brought forth in iniquity, and his wrath was against us. That was our birthright. We had no wealth, no inheritance. We had no name of worth at all. We were once an enemy of God. Now God has made peace with us through Christ. But it's more than that. You've got to get to this. Not only has God made peace, generally speaking, through Christ, but God has made peace with you. That he chose you before the foundation of the world, and he set his love on you in Christ. And he caused you by giving you a new heart to turn to him in repentance and faith, and he has adopted you into his family, and he now treats you as a firstborn son worthy of an inheritance that was once not yours. And that inheritance is undefiled. It is indestructible, and it's being saved up, kept, and guarded by Jesus in heaven for you. That you have now been declared not only righteous, but a friend of God. You are not his enemy anymore. And that is something that you and I should never recover from. We cannot become like spoiled children thinking that this is our birthright, when in fact we have been radically converted by the grace of God, radically befriended by the grace of God, that we have been disarmed in our enmity and our hostility to God by his wondrous grace, and he has won us to himself in Christ Jesus. You don't deserve it, you couldn't do it, and God did it. How can you get bored with that? Boredom with Christ, boredom with God, boredom with the gospel, boredom with the Bible, boredom is sin. Because it takes too lightly the great grace of the gospel. It takes too lightly what God has done for you in Christ and making peace and giving you peace. You have peace with God because he gave up his only son for you. The son left glory and all that, was, all that he deserved to have in terms of praise and honor and worship given, that is worship, so that he might become more humble than a servant and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? Because he considered you more important than himself. That he considered his enemies more important than himself and won you to himself. If you are bored with that, if that does not move you and has not moved you on any level, then you may need with great fear to examine yourself to see whether you are in fact in the faith. Because you have peace with God through Christ. 
And this peace with God is the foundation for all other peace in our lives. If we are not at peace with God, then the Spirit of God is not at work in our lives. But since we have, this is Paul's argument, Romans 5, been justified by faith, the Spirit of God engrafts us to Christ and our lives begin to bear fruit. So we've seen here that we have peace with God. This is the, God, the peace that God gives. But secondly, we not only have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. That the peace that God gives is not only a peace with God, but it is a peace of God. It's a peace specifically from all of the anxiety and all of the panic that comes in a world full of tribulation and trial. You may remember Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. He commends us not to worry. Don't be anxious for anything. Your father knows what you need. He clothes, uh, he, he feeds the birds the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. They neither spin nor toil. There's no anxiety. They trust in God's fatherly care. So you too seek the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Not glorious circumstances and wealth. These things is speaking about the peace that frees us from anxiety. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. So if you'll turn to your right, Philippians 4. I think he's just building on Jesus' teaching here. Philippians chapter 4. We're talking about the peace of God that God gives to his people. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. Let's start in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is talking about here is not a happy-go-lucky attitude. It is a settled trust in God's fatherly care. Notice here also that the peace of God is the result of our turning from our anxieties and turning to God. That by God's grace, we Choose not to worry, though worries and anxieties are always tempting us, but we choose instead to go to God in prayer. We make our request made known to Him. We go to His throne of grace in our time of need because Christ has gained us that kind of access. And we go with supplication, that is making request, with thanksgiving, that is knowing that every good thing has been given to us in Christ through the Father. And here's the consequence, verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, friends. When you are anxious and you are fretting, if there is panic in your life, do not wait until there is peace to go to God. We go to God and we do so not because we can see how his hand is at work in our lives, but because we trust his heart. And we know that we are in Christ and he causes everything to work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. 
and we go and we submit ourselves making requests to our Father when there is anxiety and panic because He will never turn us away. He will never reproach us. He is so unlike me and so unlike many of you and that He never gets tired of His children asking Him for stuff. And the consequence is that this deepening and abiding trust in God that is, that is exemplified, manifests itself in prayer, which is the most humble thing that a Christian can do. There's nothing in your life that throws aside self-sufficiency like prayer does. That we go to God shedding apart our own self-sufficiency, no longer walking according to our own wisdom and going, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate this. My heart is troubled. My heart is anxious. I'm full of panic. I need your help. Guide me according to your word. Send people into my life to speak wisdom to me that I don't have. And we do so all on the promise that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him go to God who gives to all generously and without reproach. No, I told you so. No, what took you so long? No, again? Haven't you already asked for this a million times? Oh, God loves persistent widows. Knocking and knocking and annoying and annoying and praying and praying and praying. And the peace of God that Get this, can't be calculated, can't be manipulated, can't be understood. It is a peace of God that surpasses understanding, is the consequence of a growing and abiding trust in God our Father. It's not the peace that is established with God through Christ. It is a disposition of the heart that is granted by the peace of God. This is why, and it is rooted in the understanding that we have been justified by faith. This is why when you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we just read, that we have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The very next verse says, therefore, we rejoice with hope because we've been made right with God. That if we have peace with God on the basis of the peace that God has made, then there is nothing in this world that can ultimately separate us from the love of Christ. And if that ultimate anxiety, this fear of death the author of Hebrews talks about, has been dealt with by God, then every other subordinate anxiety and fear has been dealt with. That we hope and trust in his fatherly care because Christ Reigns. In fact, that's what Jesus says to his disciples. Turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're on this idea of peace being something that God gives. Not just a peace with him, but the peace of God that comes to us. John chapter 16, here we have Jesus giving final words to his disciples before he takes a long path to the cross. And in verse 33, this is what he says. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Notice here in verse 33 that Jesus makes two promises. Promise number one, in me you may have peace. Promise number two, in the world you will have tribulation. You can take both of those to the bank. But notice that he follows these two promises with a command. What is the command? Take heart. Be of courage. Don't grow weary and anxious in panic. Put anxiety to death. Don't give in to its temptation. Why? Because of the indicative that follows. A statement of what is the case. Here it is. I have overcome the world. In other words, you can have peace even when the world gives you tribulation because I've overcome the world. And if I've overcome the world, then the tribulations, though they would preach to you that they have all the power in the world to separate you from the peace that belongs to you and me, are in fact powerless. They have been declawed, defanged, death has no sting, no power whatsoever. You can have peace in me. That's Jesus' promise. That God has placed everything under Christ. He has appointed him the head of the church. And this means that Jesus has total power over all of the universe. And that total world-creating, world-sustaining, omnipotent power is being used on your behalf and your good. That is his fatherly care that you are being kept and guarded in Christ through the power of the Spirit for the day of tribulation. So why do we take heart? Because we have peace in Christ. So we go to God in prayer. We trust in Him. Friends, what are you anxious about right now? What is causing you to grow anxious or worried in your heart? Are there circumstances or relationships that are threatening to overcome you? Perhaps a difficult conversation that you know you've needed to have for some time, but have set it aside. Perhaps it's been uncertainty at your job with a boss or coworkers. Perhaps there has been a lack of peace with a spouse or a roommate or a loved one. And you don't quite know how to navigate and repair what's been broken. Perhaps it's health problems. Perhaps it's a diagnosis that you're afraid to get, but know you'll have to get. Perhaps there's the darkness of depression that is not yet lifted. What are you anxious about right now? Are there circumstances, are there relationships that are threatening to overcome you? Brothers and sisters, remember that when this world threatens to overcome you, Remember that Christ has overcome the world. And that he has promised that in me, in spite of the tribulation that comes in the world, you may have peace. Do you believe that? Does that drive you to God in prayer? And so friends, brothers and sisters, what you need is not changes in circumstances. What you and I need is a settled trust in God's sovereign power and fatherly care. A determined choice to overwhelm our anxieties and to drown out our worries with an abiding trust in God that goes to Him often in prayer. Making requests and giving thanksgiving, even when our hearts are weary and weak.
Friends, you might also take time to memorize Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Put it on a card. Put it inside your car. Write it with dry erase marker on the window in your, or on the mirror in your bathroom. Unless you're one of those type A neat freaks and that bothers you, then you can just put a card on it. That's fine. Or you might memorize John 16.33 that we just saw. Friends, even in our own discipleship in this church, we need to remember, as we've just seen, that it's not our responsibility to give other people peace by fixing their circumstances. There's so many of us that want to run so quickly to offer relief when God has them in the circumstances they are for their good. That our first response shouldn't be as fixers. Our first response should be as reminders and prayers of those who would remind our brothers and sisters of the peace that they have in Christ. And to go, listen, I don't know what to do. I'm lacking wisdom, just like you're lacking wisdom. I can't, I'm not going to try to fix, but I'll pray with you. And I will pray for you. And I'm going to send you text when I do. And I'm going to send you emails when I do. And I'm going to let you know, don't let your heart be troubled. I prayed for you today. That our discipleship doesn't aim to be fixers. We aim to lead one another to the throne of grace through Christ according to his great promises over and over and over and over again. And you say, well, I don't know how to pray. I would love to pray not only for myself, but I don't know how. Listen, if you don't know how to pray, go back and listen to Matt's sermon from last week. It was so good. Go back and listen to it. I listened to it again this week. I was benefited from it. Go back and listen to it. And then make a point to be here tonight at 5 o'clock. The best way to learn how to pray is to be with the saints and pray along with us. Pray according to his word. Pray with the saints. We're going to do that tonight at 5. I would love to see you here. Well, when we have peace with God, then we are free to go to God in prayer. And when we go to God in prayer, then his peace begins to swallow up our anxieties. And when the peace of God rules in our hearts, then we will be eager to pursue peace with others. And that's our final point. We've seen now the peace that God made. We've considered the peace that God gives. Now we're going to talk about the peace that God commands. Go back to Galatians chapter 5. Because none of these that we've talked about is really the peace that Paul's talking about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. They're all connected. They're foundational for the peace that Paul's talking about here. But specifically, here when Paul is listing these nine fruits... And he's doing so contrary to the works of the flesh that we see just a few verses earlier. And he does so in the scheme of, of encouraging them in verse 26 not to become conceited or to provoke one another or to envy one another. Or in verse 15, to not bite and devour one another and to not be consumed by one another. What he's doing is he's commanding them to pursue peace with others. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It is an active, diligent pursuit of peace with others. That Because God has made peace with us, we can now pursue peace with others. Just listen to some of these verses from the New Testament. Let me just try to make an impression on you on how important the Bible thinks pursuing peace is. Matthew 5.9, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 14, 19, 
Make every effort to do what leads to peace. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men. 1 Peter 3.10-11, whoever would love life and see good days must seek peace and pursue it. You may have noticed or picked up three times in these references the phrase, pursue or to make every effort. It's the same word that's used or translated to persecute. It is to, in a negative sense, to pursue someone with single-minded devotion in order to put them down. But Paul here uses it, or, or the New Testament flips it and uses it in a positive sense. It's conveying the idea of intense effort or vigilance. It's a single-minded pursuit. It's to leave no stone unturned in our efforts. It's to do everything that we can do with God's help to humble ourselves and to live at peace with others. This is the very first promise that we make to one another in our church covenant. That we promise that we will eagerly pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's just Ephesians 4.2. All we're doing is quoting the Bible. And so how are we to do this? What are some practical steps for pursuing peace with other Christians? Let me just give you a number of points here. Number one, we have to commit to crucifying and cultivating. We have to commit to the twin works of crucifying and cultivating. Looking back at Galatians 5, look at what follows what Paul says in verse 24 after the fruit of the Spirit. Those who have belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That this ongoing aspect of crucifixion is our responsibility. But it's not merely crucifying the flesh. To crucify the flesh is at the same time to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. It is to take old sinful habits and ways of thinking and to replace it with new habits of thinking that are consummate with God and His Word and the power of the Spirit. If old habits are not replaced with new habits, old habits will crop up again, just like the weeds do in your flower garden. you got to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Actively do it. We'll talk about how to do that in just a minute. But we need to get that as a principle. It's something that we labor to do by God's power. Secondly, we need to remember that there is no law against pursuing peace. Look at what he says here. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is peace. In verse 23, against such things there is no law. What does that mean? It means that there is no law prohibiting the pursuit of peace in any circumstance or with any person. It means that there is no condition that you can make that gives you an out from pursuing peace with even the most bitter of enemies in your life. There is no prohibition to keep you from this. Peace is appropriate in every circumstance, in every relationship, regardless of how difficult or how challenging it is. So however far you have to go to turn your enemies into friends, friend, listen to me. Brothers and sisters, Christ went farther to do so with you. You will never have to go 
as far to turn an enemy into his friend as Christ had to go to make you his enemy into his friend. He is not asking you in any relationship or in any circumstance to do what he himself has done. He has paved that path, blazed it ahead of us, and we are called to live in the same faith that he did in the Father, in the same obedience and empowering of the Spirit, the very same Spirit that empowered his ministry, to pursue that kind of peace. And so there's no law against pursuing peace. And so if there's anything in your mind whatsoever that says, nope, not going to pursue peace with that person, not going to pursue peace in that situation, then you're actually disobeying the law of no law. Does that make sense? Peace is appropriate in every situation. Now that doesn't mean that the person that you pursue will respond to you in such a way that brings reconciliation. All of your pursuits of peace may be incomplete until God returns, until Christ returns and establishes His throne in glory. But that doesn't exempt us from the pursuit of it, the single-minded pursuit of it, always trusting in God's power to do the impossible and bringing about reconciled relationships and unity where there was once division. So we need to remember that there's no law against pursuing peace. Thirdly, we need to remember that we are fellow members of the same body. Speaking specifically to Christians now. Turn just a little bit to your left to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We talked about this a little bit in our membership class, and so if you're a prospective member here, you're going to hear it again, and that's good for you. Just like eating your vegetables. You've got to eat them all the time. Hear them over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is showing us how even though the body is made up of many parts, those parts all form one body, and it's the body of Christ. This is what we learn in verses 12 all the way through 23, that we are all connected to Christ. You can just scan through that. And that because we're all connected to him, we're all connected to one another. But the question becomes, how is it that the world can see something that's spiritual in nature? this spiritual unity. Paul's going to tell us practically in verses 25 and 26. He says, picking up at verse 24 actually, <clears throat> but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. But the key word that I want to focus in on is that word in verse 25 that you may have scanned over, that they may have the same care. That the church is a community unlike every other earthly community in which fellowship means that each and every member comes to have fully the same concern, the same care, and the same love for every other member of the body. It is an indiscriminate love that reflects the indiscriminate grace of Christ. And so we don't let our love and our compassion and our hopes for others to be limited to some subsection or some small group of the whole. We don't let our love be partial and our love isn't to be preferential that we want each member to show care 
the same care for each and every other member. What Paul's saying here is that nobody slips through the cracks. Division occurs in the church when people slip through the cracks. Division and discord and a lack of peace occurs in the church when some are given preferential treatment over, the, uh, over others. Think about Acts chapter 6, that a dispute arose in the church because the, the Gentile widows were being neglected in the offering of bread. There was, there was partiality being shown. And so the apostles appointed deacons specifically to promote unity in the body, make sure everybody gets the same care. If you want to know somebody who does this, though they would admit it imperfectly, but you know who does this really well? It's Josh and Charlene Woolley. That it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're easy to love or hard to love. It doesn't matter what kind of socioeconomic background you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of church background come, you come from or whether you even have a church background. They want you in their home and they want to spend time with you. If you want to know how do I love people in that way that gives the same care for each and every member, you might observe what Josh and Charlene do, though they would admit always imperfectly. And you might even sit down with them over lunch and go, how do you do this and why? And so I love, brother and sister, I love how you love those who are so difficult to love. Those who are often the receiving end on the bad end of partiality in the church. Friends, that can't be us. Every member deserves the same care. Lisa Crane, I'm looking at you. One of the things that I love about watching Lisa Crane in ministry through the years is that Lisa is like a magnet to those who maybe aren't quite on the end. And so I've seen her time and again pursue those who are on the fringes of our church. And I love that. Because underneath all of that, though Lisa would say always imperfectly, is a desire to see the same care for every member. And that means then that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that if the same care is required for every member, then every member requires care. Nobody is left out and nobody is self-sufficient. That's why verses 14, nobody can say, I don't belong. That's why verse 16, nobody can say, I don't belong. That's why verse 21, no one can say, I have no need of you. We are all part of one body. That if we are to pursue peace with one another, then we have to reject self-sufficiency and we have to cultivate the kind of culture in our church where nobody is able to say, I don't belong. I don't care how hard you are to love. I don't care how quirky your personality is. I don't care what your preferences are for music, politics, for sports, or otherwise. I don't care. If you are in Christ, then you belong to us. And we belong to you. And we labor to give one another the same care and in so doing, promote unity among us. Okay? Next. Are we in fourthly? Is this number four? Number four. We need to recognize that the cause of discord often lies wholly or partly with us. There are very few things like in relationships that are broken, where there has been discord or disunity, I don't know that there's many other circumstances in which we get logs in our own eye and see specks in others. That we are brilliant at seeing all of the reasons this other person has promoted disunity or discord in our relationship. 
I think we need to begin not with what that other person does or what that other person has said. Rather, we need to begin instead with what we have done and recognize that the cause of discord often lies wholly or partly with us. And when that other person goes, well, listen, you said this or you did that, we don't respond, yeah, but you, we say, you're right, I did do that. I'm sorry. And trust the Lord and leave that other person's heart with God and trust that he is able to work on them even when you're not able to. So recognize the cause of discord lies wholly or partly with us. Fourthly, we take initiative to restore peace. We don't wait for others to initiate. We take the initiative. We don't stop and define who our neighbor is. We make ourselves a neighbor. Wherever there's peace to be restored, not just where there's broken relationships, but people who are far off that need to be brought near, those who need care, we give the same care and we take initiative, which means that every single person in the church, if you see a need, then you meet a need. If you want to know how you've been gifted for ministry, you do not need to take a bubble bubble cheat test. If you want to know how the Spirit has gifted you for ministry, see a need and meet a need. Take initiative. And you'll be surprised at the way the Spirit equips you for ministry. So here we've considered three things. The peace that God has made, the peace that God gives, and the peace that God commands.